0: It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. I'm Teresa. And I'm Colleen. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Hello, and welcome to Tangential Inspiration. This is Colleen. This is Teresa. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Good. Thanks. How about good. you? I'm doing good. We're getting Glad ready here. for Christmas. Mm-hmm. We celebrate Christmas. Are you all set? Yeah. Yeah. I had a really fun thing happen today. A really special thing happened today. So I, a friend said she was dropping by to bring me something and I had something for her too. And I had found these really cute candles at a bazaar and it, the brand is Willa Jean
1: mm-hmm. Candles.
0: They're a local candle company. So which is
1: so great. You love <laughs>
0: yeah, I went to this really cute bazaar this year, and everything was local, and it was so cute. The name of the candle was Merry and Bright, which I loved too.
1: Yeah, that's sweet. That it was really cute. clever.
0: Yeah, and so I gave her this candle and also a macrame. <laughs> Snowflake <laughs> that I had bought, which is so cute. You guys, I said to Teresa, macrame is back, and she said, "I think it's been back for a while." Oh, I, I only <laughs> but, know that because of the young people in my life. Okay, so,
1: well, I don't have many
0: of them. <laughs> but I gave it to her, and she left because they were going somewhere else. So she kind of left quickly. And a couple of minutes later, she texted me, and she said, "My grandma's name was Willa Jean," and. She just said it made me think of her at Christmas time, and I just uh, she's I just not going to want to burn really that cute. candle, I, that candle now because she can buy gonna, more. But okay. no. you know, she'd go on Willa Jean's website. Yeah. But I just thought that was really, really cute. Too. What are um, the odds of that? I know. I just that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was really hmm. sweet.
1: It's going to remind her of her grandma. I know.
0: I just thought that Best was present. really cool at Christmas yeah. time to, you know, think of those that we've loved yeah. and lost, of course. Yeah.
1: I think, I think really that's cool. a really good thing too to remember that it's for the holidays it is hard for some people. Sure. Cuz um, absolutely. Not everyone's here. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> that's
0: a fun thought, story. Yeah. Yeah. So it was so funny because I love these candles and I realized like I had given one away and so I actually went to her website and I ordered some more. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can never so, have too many candles. I know <laughs> they're just so cute. So that's it's been fun. fun. How are how are you doing with your shopping?
1: I feel like I'm doing really well. Good. It's almost like my I'm I have my boss as my secret Santa. Oh, so that's easy because or no, I'm oh. her secret Santa. Okay, so it's really easy because yeah, good. It's easy, it's easy. I feel I feel like I'm in a pretty good place this year. So good. I'm feeling ahead of the. Yeah. Knock on wood. I'm ahead of the game. Yeah. So, yeah, we had our, um, we went and did a, for Craig's work party, okay. we're going to try to win
0: with the crazy sweater thing. The oh, sweater. Jeff won at his. Oh, he did? His crazy How sweater. did he win? It's a really funny, like it shows, his crazy sweater shows Jesus crowd surfing. It's really <laughs> funny. It's really okay. funny. Okay. But he won for his work.
1: Ooh. <laughs> fun um speaking of you talking about jeff reminds me of him dressing up as charlie brown so i watched the documentary on charles schultz yes so good
0: yes yes I love, so I love it reminded it. me of your podcast yes so. and i also heard the music before i came here today just the charlie mm-hmm. brown music and i just i just get you it. in the mood i know get yes. you in the mood okay we're focused yes so today I'm talking about, shockingly, another documentary I've watched. I know cool. you all are surprised. And it's called Finding Michael.
1: We've oh, talked goodness.
0: about it a little bit. Um, I told you the gist of it. But it's on Hulu and Disney Plus, And I was just really blown away by it. And so I just wanted to talk about it.
1: Remind me, Finding Michael.
0: Yes. Um, okay, I'll learn about that. Yes, minute. you will.
1: Okay. I'm going to chat just a little bit about a guy named Charlie Jeffers, who's actually, he's like saving the environment by collecting Legos and then helping people that can't afford Legos and just making it all, just doing great things as a kid. And then also with Legos, exactly. (laughs) Who doesn't
0: love Legos? I know. Remember the Lego MRI? Yes, exactly. That's what made me
1: think of this. I was like, she will love this story. And then I had to holler. I'm like, are you sure we didn't talk about this guy when she talked about the nope, Lego Mart?" No, we Mars? didn't. And then um, I finished reading the book on Fonzie. Henry Winkler. So, yes. I'm gonna shout <laughs> His name about is him. actually Henry Winkler, <laughs> right? Yes. yes. Great. Henry Winkler. I'm excited. going to chat about him. So this young man named Charlie Jeffers. He's been playing with Legos since, you know, he was four or five. He is a senior at Redwood High School in Marin County, California. And in 2020, he started Pass the Bricks. So he wants to keep, like I said, Legos out of landfills. He wants to keep the plastic out of landfills. And he wants to get them into the hands of kids that couldn't otherwise afford to buy Legos. They're crazy expensive. Right. They really are. Yes. They really are. Yes. Um, So he launched Past the Bricks in 2020 to address both of these issues. He and his volunteer team repurpose used Legos and they take them to kids in marginalized communities who couldn't otherwise afford them. That's awesome. So, Pass the Bricks has a template with four key steps. They collect used Legos, they sanitize and sort them, and then they create new sets with the used bricks and deliver the that's sets. That's
0: adorable. So, they, they put, put them in sets. Yes. It's not just, like, dumping Legos. Right. It's a set. Yes. Oh,
1: my yes. gosh. That's awesome. Um, so, the creative. team... It is
0: very creative. Yes.
1: The team distributes the sets to kids um, in need directly or through partnerships with 11 various... Nonprofit organizations. Um, one of them is the Boys and Girls Club of America, mm-hmm. and as part of these ongoing relationships, Pass the Bricks delivers a specific number of sets every month. So, like they have, an example, fifty sets per month okay. to the Boys and Girls Club in San Francisco. So that nonprofit can you know include Distribute its deliveries them. exactly. Right. To date, they've delivered over three thousand and fifty-five sets to kids in need. Wow,
0: that's a lot of Legos. A lot. because sp- when you think about it, that's a set,
1: yes, which includes yeah. who knows how many Legos? A, a whole lot, right a whole lot, right? Yes, these poor parents that are stepping <laughs> on the Legos. but some of the new sets are quite in like innovative, like I said, like Superman would like to just have the day off set. Um, I don't have a picture of it, but it's adorable. featuring I love Superman. A- <laughs> We've already established we that. We do, yes. Um, but this one features a grumpy Clark Kent in his bed with his suit hanging in the closet. That's or adorable. there's
0: the I just want a day <laughs> off. That's adorable.
1: Um, the droid escape pod, which is a faithful representation of the spacecraft spacecraft used by R2-D2 in the opening scenes of the first Star Wars yeah. film. So he's got over 20 volunteers he's expanded the program into communities not only in san francisco um and i couldn't find it in portland but it, he said that he Might has be it coming portland austin dc richmond and los angeles and he's looking to even make more of an impact he's created an easy to use program like i said with these templates to create a clear instructions on how to facilitate the program out of just a home
0: so okay. somebody, you
1: know, another teenager oh, could do it. Oh, got it. His ultimate it. goal okay. is to have widespread behavior change so that the Lego brick has a second life and that as many kids as possible can have access to Legos. because so Like he said, awesome. it's, it's helped him learn, you know, important concepts like right. math and engineering and how to be focused, right? flexible, creative. I just think it's what a great thing that this love this young man's doing. So
0: I good kids it. out there. Yes.
1: So you can check out this young man, Charlie Jeffers, at pass the bricks.org.
0: Um, so like I said, I watched this great documentary on Hulu that was called Finding Michael. And if you haven't watched it and you think you want to watch it, there are spoilers in this. Okay, so maybe turn, turn this warned. off and come back if, if you don't want to. If you don't want the spoilers, because when I was doing research on it online, you know I've watched the documentary a couple times, but they don't give you the spoiler online, which is kind oh, of cool. Uh-huh. And so, you know, if, if you so. don't want the spoiler, you've been warned. So, uh, one thing that made me chuckle when I did the research on this is that the documentary does. Michael is the brother of the main character, Spencer, Mm -hmm. in this. So, the main character is Spencer Matthews. Michael is his brother, Michael Matthews. Apparently, didn't know this when I watched the documentary, Spencer Matthews is a former reality TV star. He was in a show called Made in Chelsea. Mm. I think it's in European or Scotland. Okay, okay. Thing. I've never heard of it. It's not the the Golden Bachelor? No. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also not a big reality TV connoisseur. So... Maybe you, mm-hmm. your listener, no. know this. So when Spencer, who was ten years old in 1999, his brother Michael died while climbing Mount Everest, and he was actually he had just become the youngest Brit to reach the mm. summit at the age of 22. Just hours later, he vanished. So he was climbing. He'd reached the summit um, with a guide. And his friend Dave, he was with a friend Dave. Dave and his guide got up there and were coming back down. He saw Michael Mm -hmm. with his guide. Kind of gave him the thumbs up like, here Mm -hmm. we are. Mm -hmm. He went down, saw Michael Mm summiting. And as they were coming down, the guide was slightly in front of him. Mm -hmm. Turned around and all of a sudden Michael was gone. And there was a storm coming in. Mm -hmm. They couldn't go back and find him. So Spencer went and visited Dave in this, at the beginning of this, when he decided he, Spencer has decided he wants to go back and try to find his brother's body. Mm -hmm. And that is what this documentary is about. So he realized that Dave had this incredible video of his brother's 1999 expedition. And Mm. when you have, when I, you really have to remember that he was 10 years old when this happened. So I'm sure, and he said, I just remember that my parents were very sad. Mm -hmm. I was very sad. And one thing he said is that, sorry, this is, is that we didn't laugh for a very long time after that. And I remember thinking as a 10 year old, of course, that's what you're going to remember is that we didn't laugh for a very long time. So Dave was a Canadian climber who had been with Michael on the trip. And Dave described Michael as the best mate. I love that word. Mm. I could have ever hoped for on the mountain. And he was humbled and honored to be in this film. And they were showing film. So apparently when you land in Nepal, mm-hmm. it takes you eight days to get to base camp at Mount Everest. Oh, I, didn't uh, know I just that. really had no clue. Yeah. So I knew mm-hmm. it
1: took a while, and I know mm-hmm. you have to like stay at base camp for a little while. Mm-hmm. while to get acclimated. acclimated and, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: but eight days. So, mm-hmm. Wow. So they had taken this video that Dave had taken. And, you know, back in the day, it's it's bulky. Mm-hmm, you know? yes, yes. <laughs> and it's also interesting. And they spliced them so you could see next, like, the video from today with Spencer mm-hmm. <clears throat> doing the same trek his brother did and the video from 1999 next to each other. It's seriously identical. Oh, wow. Although you can see the difference in quality mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from 1999 and yeah. now. It was so interesting. I was shocked at how little it changed. At one point, they were coming across this rope bridge with animals and Sherpas in Nepal. And it literally, besides the coloring, it was identical. It was just wow. amazing to me. Wow. So in the documentary, Spencer goes to discuss finding his brother's body with Bear Grylls. Mm, okay. <clears throat> if you don't know who Bear Grylls is, he's a famous adventurer, writer, television producer, and a businessman. And best I have his known- book. I still-
1: wow, two of his books. I still haven't read them. Oh, okay. He is he might best be a known rock,
0: yeah. yeah he might be a good one too he is best known for his series Man vs. wild mm-hmm. which focuses on wilderness survival <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. yes so this is so interesting I, I don't I, I just didn't know any of this but Bill um bear himself climbed Everest in 1998 at the age of 23. yeah he was like the youngest person at the time so Michael beat him the next year right yeah so bear did it at age 23 at night in 1998. Michael did it in 1999 at age 22. 22. Right. So Michael had actually broken the record. Mm-hmm. Bear and other mountaineers were traveling and visiting schools and talking about their experiences mountaineering and came to Spencer's school. And Spencer spoke up asking about his brother like do you know Michael Matthews? Mm-hmm. And it was like pin drop apparently. Bear immediately spoke up and said how much he admired Michael and was devastated by his loss. And apparently, he just walked right down, immediately approached Spencer with oh comfort and friendship. And, and brotherhood. Instant buddies. Yep. yep. And Spencer said I was just so impressed that he knew who my brother was. He said that just meant so much yeah. to him because Spencer kind of made it as a challenge like do you know
1: mm-hmm. who my
0: brother was? Like he beat your record and you're Aww. here. You know but he just said I was so touched that he knew who my brother was. Yeah. He knew what happened and so he and Bear really bonded. So before he decided to make this trek he went and visited Bear Girls. And this is shown on the documentary them talking about it. So Bear did not take part in going up on this trip, but he was a producer on this, and they mm-hmm. just did a lot of talking about. And he actually helped him put together the team that would that, help him get up. that would help him get okay. up there. So, and you know Spencer, who was ten, like he said, um, always struggled to accept this death because, yeah. in case you don't know about Everest, people do not get these bodies back. Um, It's too dangerous. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because I I knew that they don't get the bodies back, but I just didn't really understand why. Mm -hmm. And this documentary really helps you understand why. Another thing I want to tell people, too, is that you don't see any bodies in this. They do blur them all out. So if you are concerned about Mm -hmm. that and that is a hurtful thing Mm -hmm. to you, please know that you will not see Mm -hmm. that. They are all blurred out. So... Like, the, like I said, like the family of many climbers who have lost loved ones on Everest, they don't have a body to mourn or say goodbye to. Yeah. There's actually a, over 160 missing people on Everest. Wow. The average is seven deaths a year of people either trying to summit or coming uh-huh. down from Everest. So, but and coming this, down, that kind of surprises just slipping yep. or, okay. Yeah, the weather can change in a heartbeat yeah, there. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's just, it, it's just shocking yeah. to me just how many people, anyway, no. it, it's it's amazing to me. So, and we'll talk about one other spot that's just blew my mind when I was watching it on there that I was just like, it's kind of a joke because I think you and I are very similar about like, oh, I think I'd like to do that someday. <laughs> and after watching this and another movie that I watched on the Everest, I said to my husband, if I ever say I want to climb Everest, tell me no. <laughs> He's like, okay.
1: See, I know that I'd be too cold. That would be one thing. Yeah, that is very cold.
0: Bear said that while amazing rescues have been done on Everest, there has never been a complex body location and recovery mission like this, especially Mm. at extreme altitude. So he, you know, was lost right at the top. So um, that's the other scary thing. And um the dangers and the risks of the mountain are still very real. Yeah. So that part at the top where he was lost is called this sounds horrible, but it is called the death zone.
1: Mm.
0: Because the average human cannot live there. They can't. One Just thing, the oxygen. The oxygen. Nothing, yeah. Um one thing I noticed about these Sherpas who live there and work there, mm-hmm. they're even gasping for air. Mm. And these guys live there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is their jobs every day. Even with technology and the equipment and the forecasting has gotten better since he climbed it, since Michael climbed it in 1999. Obviously, we have better weather, Mm -hmm. you know, not better weather, but a way to predict it. Right. The mountain still claims many lives. It's still a big, dangerous mountain, and we had to be super respectful of that in attempting this recovery of Michael's body, he said. So in 2017, Michael's family was sent a body of a, uh, a photo of a body on the mountain, which could have been that of their lost son. So, interesting enough, Dave, do you remember the guy at the beginning here mm-hmm. that climbed with him? Still has his summit suit. It kind of looks like a snow suit I'm sure it's more yeah, than that. Right. But it's a one piece. Yeah. And he still has his summit suit, and it's the same as Michael's. Michael's. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's orange and black. And he gave it to Spencer and said, Take this with you. Mm hmm. So that you can, if you're looking, you can find it. Looking for the problem is he's been out there for has it been twenty years, twenty five years, twenty years? With that exposure, colors can change. Yeah, it could have changed to yellow, Mm -hmm. right? But so they were sent a a picture of a body on the mountain, and they thought this could be Michael, and that is actually what inspired Spencer to send. Set the wheels in motion for a recovery mission and this or doc- and this documentary. So to give you an idea, a lot of times here in America, you know, this documentary said he's at eight thousand meters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: that's at twenty six thousand feet for us. Wow. So if we think about I think Mount Hood is about nine thousand feet, if you want to think about it. Mm-hmm. Mount everest is twenty six thousand feet, so. Spencer said, in a childish sense, I've always wanted to bind him and to bring him home. I'd never understood it as a possibility until the communication around this photo. This is the first time I'd ever heard of a body being recovered from Everest, or even the possibility of it being real. And his one concern, really, is he just was didn't want to put other climbers at risk, too. Yeah. That was a big deal. And for us to undertake the project, we had to get comfortable with the level of risk for the search and recovery team, because risking more life to recover my dead brother is not something that we would ordinarily entertain. Right. He said it was just really hard. So he went and asked Bear Grylls for help, who became the executive producer on the film, and he wanted to help him pull together the best climbing team possible. And they recruited Nimsdal Perja the world 14 peak record holder to lead a team of 10 for the missions of 10 Sherpas. And there's plenty of things on Everest that can kill you, even if you're a super experienced climber. So Spencer ended up traveling to Nepal and he actually stayed in the base camp when the climbing team went up to search and he really wanted to go up. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of people, I have to say, uh, when I looked at the reviews of this documentary that were very, I'm trying to think of the words that I want to say against Spencer for not going
1: mm-hmm. up and
0: just saying he should have gone. He put other people at risk. And
1: oh and gosh. Spencer said,
0: I just could not put my mother yeah. Yeah. through the thought of losing another son. Yeah. Doing the same thing. He said, I just couldn't. Yeah.
1: And, and so I just feel like people need to, my you know, you never know what's, and right. I'm going to talk a little bit about that with, with the bombs, Right. You just... We need to do less judging. I don't know why he...
0: He wasn't going right, on, so. and he really wanted to. And he he, he was he's in very good shape. Mm-hmm. He's not a stranger to adventure, but he said, "I just could not do that to my mom." Yeah. He also had a family of three little kids. In fact, mm-hmm. right before he he left, his wife he had an eight day old baby. Oh my god! <laughs> no, his wife is so sweet. <laughs> he said, "I wouldn't want to put my mother through the pain of worrying about losing another son in similar circumstances." And this
1: one understanding yeah. wife, yeah. An eight day old baby,
0: and two others that were small. I would say like under five. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, just a little guy. So, like I said, you, to get to Everest, you fly to Nepal and then it's an eight day trek to base camp at Everest. Now, when I was doing some Googling about because it, it seems like that eight days is kind of on the shorter. So, I don't know if it's because mm-hmm. these guys were in good shape. The more I looked about other treks, it would be up to 14 days yes. just to go from mm-hmm. Nepal. So, is this is a long yeah. time away from yeah. his family. I think it was almost a month. Away from his family. So, and then they were actually, they used drones, Mm, which mm -hmm. was so awesome, too, because it was less putting people in danger. Right. Yeah. So, they actually used drones to fly all over the top of the mountain to try and locate and differentiate bodies. Mm -hmm. And then they would rope up and go check it out
1: because that is just brilliant i'm it was so amazing yeah it
0: was so amazing to see i love
1: because they're using yes. drones with sharks yes you know locating sharks the only
0: problem them. is that if the weather gets bad yeah. you can't use a drone if it's it down. snows you can't use a drone but, but
1: um, people aren't going to be up there if the weather is bad either so true. at least if the drone right you know
0: drops right it's just a drone
1: you know? right
0: Much so safer. and then they would also be like if Yeah, so, and there was also some other things, like the certain watch he was wearing, so if Mm. they could locate the body, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Spencer even talked about, I'm going to have to be the one that's going to have to say for sure. He kind of had to prepare himself mentally to say, I might have to see him, I might have Mm -hmm. to, you know, um, and, you know, he and his wife really talked about that, too, a lot Mm. and everything like that, so, anyway, so, like I said, they would use drones, and then they would rope up and get to that body. Obviously, we have all seen pictures and videos of Everest. I was just shocked at the angles and the sheerness. Mm, like, mm-hmm. these guys are walking. Yeah. It is a 90-degree degree, mm-hmm. degree yeah. drop. I just... <laughs> I mean, these guys are roped up, and I'm literally... My heart yeah. is pounding. <laughs> so, the Sherpas are clearly, like I said, acclimated from working and living in this area, and they're still gasping as they walked around. Mm-hmm. It is grueling work. I, I just... After the first search was over, Spencer said he wanted to, you know, they were taking a little bit of a rest. And Spencer said he wanted to review the drone footage and confirm. He just was like, I want to just make sure they didn't miss a boot or a glove. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, he's being that brother. He's that
1: far out. You know, he's that close to the. Yes. Yeah. He's not going to be there again. So they showed him, and this
0: this really blew me away, too. I think I've said blown away a hundred (laughs) times. But he as they were looking at the footage together najim was there looking at him and he said okay so is that a a rock or a body it, it the scope of what they were looking at you can't i almost could not fathom the amount of what the drone was catching and how hard it was to tell mm-hmm. what you were looking at with your own eyes mm-hmm. like he thought i'll just look and make sure they didn't miss anything It's impossible to tell. Even just, it was just really, I I can't even explain to you the magnitude of this Mm -hmm. search.
1: And and even with you saying there's been over a hundred people, you know, missing Mm -hmm. up there.
0: 160. From when was that started? The 1920s. 1920s, They've been keeping track since the 1920s. And seven a year, about. Mm -hmm. So, and at that point, Spencer realized after seeing the magnitude and that drone footage mm-hmm. and realizing there's no way if a glove was sticking out that I could just spot that. Yeah. It's just the magnitude is too And it's too been much. so many
1: years. I mean, there's been the weather. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right. And at that point, he realized this might not happen. Mm-hmm. I might not be able to bring Mike home. Mm-hmm. And this was a real turning point for him. And even for me, as I watched this footage, like I really, really understood as much as I can without obviously ever being there. Mm-hmm. Like. When I first started watching this documentary, I'm like, let's find Mike. Mm -hmm. This is going to be so great. He's going to bring bring his brother home. He's got these experienced people Mm -hmm. and drones and helicopters. Best team possible. We're going to find Mike, and this is going to be amazing for this man's family. He also started understanding that the families... He started understanding about how other families felt about not being able to get their loved ones. And... He started looking at the names of all these people and how he started realizing how they are all over the world. Like I said previously, there's 160 bodies and they were from everywhere. South Korea, Europe, United States. He just, I think he just realized the scope. Mm -hmm. Every, there were families all over the world that had lost loved loved ones on this mountain. I think it just became huge for him. He noted that they had the resources and the ability already there to help another family, and he started to explore this possibility, discussing with the Sherpas who agreed saying that they would like to do a good thing on the way down. I wanted to comment on these sweet, kind Sherpas. <clears throat> Sorry. They were just so filled with emotion, so devoted, and they came into this So sure that they would be able to locate Michael. I mean, they had all these pictures. Spencer had brought Mm -hmm. up this huge, like, string with all these pictures of Michael Mm -hmm. and his suit. And they would just, they were just so caring and compassionate and hardworking. Mm -hmm. They were just amazing. And Spencer had noted that Mike had felt this strong connection to the Sherpa community in his final days. And when I first read that, I thought, I guess I didn't even understand that you are there for such this long period, right? right? You spent right. 10 days with them just yeah. getting to this base one, right? And he just had felt this connection to this Sherpa community and just seeing this sweet, loving community. So for the second search, the weather started getting warmer. It can be a great thing to find a body because mm-hmm. things are melting, but it is much more dangerous, dangerous. for yeah, the yeah. climbers. One thing that I didn't mention is There's this area to cross, and it's called Kumbu Icefall, and it's actually a frozen waterfall. Oh my gosh. And you know what they have to cross it? A metal ladder. So you just throw this puppy down, and you just kind of go across uh, this metal ladder. No. no. And every time I see them go across this metal ladder, it really (laughs) worries me. I do. I hold my breath. And they actually climb it super early in the morning so that it's very frozen. And this is one of the things that starts melting that's really scary. And they kind of knew with this warming, this is going to be our final search. It's just getting too warm. We can barely cross this, and this is it. And it was also about this time that Spencer started discussing what he called Plan B. If we can't find Michael, this is our Plan B. That's what he called it with the Sherpas and what family they could help. And they noted that there was No, this-
1: Colleen is not sick. She's just <laughs> making us all cry.
0: There was this Sherpa called Wang Dorchi, who had died the year before outside of Camp 4, and they knew where he was. They knew where he was. Spencer went down to visit his family. It was his brother and his mom in Kathmandu, Nepal. So I looked that up, too, because I honestly don't know where these mm-hmm. things are located. It's about four hours away from Mount Everest. So, like I said, uh, Wang Dorchi was a Sherpa. And Spencer went to visit Wang's brother and mother. Wang's wife had also passed away of cancer. Mm -hmm. And then Wang had died on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And he left three kids, nine, seven, and six, who were now being raised by this sweet brother that Spencer went to visit. Spencer shared with him and his mom that if they could not find Michael, they were going to try and get Wang. Which really is probably what Michael
1: would have wanted. Right. Right.
0: And um, Wang's brother said they are too poor and they had no sponsor to help them get their brother down from the mountain. And they were just so grateful. And watching his mom cry about it, (laughs) like she had to leave the room. I was like, I need to leave the room too. It just broke my heart to watch his mom cry And Spencer noted that they had both lost brothers that had been to the summit and were coming down. It was very sweet. So after completing the second search and not locating Mike, they did move forward to plan B. As the Sherpas walked up to Wang Dorchi's body, I again reflected as they gasped for air because they're pulling this body and then roped up and took his body, walking on just a sheer drop, pulling it along to the helicopter. How truly dangerous even getting a body that they knew where it was. Like, it just blew my mind. They know exactly where it was. So the helicopter took off to land in Nepal to Dorchi's family. And a Sherpa remarked, I thought this was so cute. Be good. "'Always good things happen to you.'" They were so grateful to return one of their own back to the family. Spencer was in the helicopter holding the body. He was acutely aware that he was flying down the mountain with somebody else, but really felt that his brother was so generous and open-hearted that he would have wanted this. Wang Dorchi's family was waiting, and the oldest child, a daughter, was openly sobbing. This really touched Spencer, and he also felt that things had come full circle. As he arrived back home, he reflected that he had never felt closer to his brother. He said, I mean, he was so young when he died, but he had been able to spend weeks thinking and talking only of Michael and really moving through his feelings of pain and loss. He said, I just really got to concentrate on him for like those three weeks. And he said, just because we didn't find his body doesn't mean I didn't find him. I love that. I just loved it. You know, and I, I saw, like I said, I saw somebody else that had commented on, like we shouldn't, you know, film a child sobbing. We mm-hmm. shouldn't. I just really felt touched by that child, and Spencer did too. Mm-hmm. He he basically says, you know, seeing that just really touched me, and really made me. I was just so glad to return this he to the made family.
1: A right decision. He said that. A- he said that. Yeah. The- um,
0: so I just loved it. I just loved. That he used this for good. He just mm-hmm. said, we have everything here. Yeah. Let's just use what I have to help this family. And um, I well, just. Who would never be able to. Never. Bring, yeah. Even, no. no. though Like you said, they knew right where he was. They knew right where he was. And I just really I just really love this documentary and um sorry to be a little bit of a downer, <laughs> but I just really loved I I thought it was just one of the most unselfish things yeah. I've ever And I think that's seen. what I love about it is Um just with somebody helping somebody else out and I encourage you to watch it. I think you'll really be inspired just by the love and even by the Sherpas that just the devotion and
1: one and of my love. favorite residents who sadly isn't with us anymore, but her and her brother had traveled over in Nepal. They didn't actually climb Everest, but right. she had commented so often about the Sherpas and just how amazing they were. Yes, and, you know, bringing them tea and and just packing all this heavy stuff. Yes. And and she would be bragging about these hikes. But I'm like, you know, the people that really need to be bragging are the the Sherpas because right. they're amazing. Yep athletes in themselves to do what they do but yes yeah I think Spencer definitely made his brother proud
0: I think also you know I watched it one time a couple months ago and then I watched it a second time in preparation for this because I really wanted to you know remember the details Mm -hmm. and it just was even just more for me just looking at them and watching them and just feeling their compassion and kindness so, Which reminds this family more of that, yes. more of that,
1: more compassion and
0: kindness. Yes, Whoa. so that's on Disney Hulu and Disney Plus, is my understanding. It called? It's called Finding Michael, Finding Michael. Yes,
1: so do you remember Pinky Tuscadero? Yes, <laughs> or her cousin? <laughs> I thought her name was Heather, but apparently her cousin's name was Leather. Well, I kind of do, and she did the clap clap. And then the, the,
0: that just no. sounds so familiar to me.
1: <laughs> Not a
0: lot of happy days
1: episodes stick out to me, Mm-mm. but that two part episode certainly does. I remember it was two parts cause I had to wait. It's out on the top, you know, the hood of the car right. with the Malachi crunch and, <laughs> I think I
0: was more of a Joni girl because okay. that's who sticks oh, out to me. No, no not
1: me. I,
0: was, I wanted to be pink, text. I girl. think your mom would be sad about that. Probably. <laughs>
1: no, like. I didn't realize the Happy Days was really supposed to be focused more so on Richie Cunningham. Okay. Um,
0: Interesting. And then, that maybe that family or just him?
1: Yeah, I think mostly the Cunninghams. Yeah. Okay. But it ended up, and Arthur Fonsarelli was supposed to be, you know, more of the sporting gas. Okay. But after reading Henry Winkler's new book, "Being Henry: The Fonz and Beyond," (laughs) all sorts of happy day facts. Awesome! Oh my gosh, it was so good. I think everybody should read this book. And because this is a short, I'm just going to gloss over some things. Okay. That was. It was interesting that the best part was learning more about Henry Winkler, and I just got to say, I have a whole new. Appreciation yes, and admiration too about the guy. Love it. Do you have a favorite role that he's played? Wow,
0: I I can't think of any right <laughs> off the bat. Finally,
1: he was in Arrested Development. Okay, I haven't seen that. Okay, he was also in uh Parks and Rec. I haven't seen that either. Okay, yes, you need to. Because I know because somebody has told me that I like somebody. Yes. <laughs> so you do need to watch. Okay, Amy Poehler in uh, Parks and Rec, but I loved, loved, loved him as the music teacher. Okay. And um, Here Comes the Boom. Oh. Oh, my gosh. You have to see that movie. I am just. Salma Hayek. And I love him. her. Um, Kevin James. Okay. Who probably won't be on the podcast, but that was a really good movie. But the, that's probably my favorite character that I've seen him as. And then followed by him as the coach on The Waterboy. Have you not seen The Waterboy? If
0: I have, it's been a while. It's been a long time. I'm so sorry to disappoint (laughs) you
1: No. Very endearing characters. So a few things that I learned in the book, no a certain order. Henry's family actually escaped Nazi Germany. Wow. So his father was in the logging industry and he had convinced his wife Mm -hmm. and everyone that they were going to go to New York for a business trip. Okay. For two weeks. Um, Like I said, he didn't tell his wife the truth. Because he knew that she wouldn't leave her family behind. Right. She wouldn't go without them, and they couldn't all go.
0: So he obviously felt like this is going oh, down. Yeah, yeah. we he need to get out of here. Yes. Oh, um, I'm so glad he did. Thank yes. Especially because I hope that later on she said you were right. <laughs> I, I don't know that that wasn't in the book,
1: but. He knew that she wouldn't leave her family behind, and thank goodness he, you know, kind of told that lie, because sadly, their entire family perished. His father was brilliant. He had taken his mom's, um, his mother's jewels. Mm-hmm. He had melted chocolate bars down, put the jewels in there, and then put the chocolate bars over, because they examined all of their, you know, they had to open up oh, the bags. And, so smart.
0: Um,
1: so it gave him, when he came, when they got to New York, he had the money from selling the jewelry right because they're not to live oh yeah yeah exactly so they tight german community in new york would be you know like a surrogate family for them right in fact it was because of this tight german community that he developed henry developed a love of gardening that he has now his tante anna had smuggled a spider plant <laughs> actually in a coffin from Nazi Germany (laughs) and throughout the years it had been split and propagated and it had even traveled, you know, his piece had traveled with him over to Hollywood. I love it. Really another family would have probably been more ideal for Henry because like I said, his parents treated him terribly.
0: He struggled in school. Oh,
1: it was, yeah, this book was in that part. He just, he had a, a rough relationship with his parents, but they called him dumb dog in German. Like when your parents don't believe right. in you, right. it's hard to believe in yourself. Right. And the whole book, the whole book just went on and, you know, it, it covered his lack of confidence and just feeling like a poser and right. not, not comfortable in his own skin, I guess. Wow. Even though he was the fawns Right. I mean.
0: Successful. Yeah.
1: Successful right away. That's really what the book f- focused on was, you know, being yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's just so hard to believe that the man who played the coolest guy in America totally struggled with confidence. Right. And it only got worse after he had been typecasted. Sure. His parents were terrible to him, like I said, but that didn't stop them from taking advantage of their celebrity son. So when he was the Fonz, his mom shared his phone number (sighs) with People in their community. So Henry Winkler had to change his number. And he's, you know, because these people were calling him. I think it was their way to, like, climb the social ladder. I also learned that, remember jumping the shark? No. Well, it's a phrase that they say. Oh, okay, okay. With jumping the shark. And so... Fonzie, or, well, Henry Winkler actually must have water skied on the lake during the summers. And so his dad said, you need to let the directors and the producers know that you do that, the writers. And so that's part of why they wrote in about him Fonzie water skiing. Oh,
0: that's hysterical. So
1: um, he didn't actually jump the shark himself, but everything else related to the water skiing, water skiing. with him in the leather jacket. That really was Henry was Winkler. Really, yeah. And he's like, I had some good legs back then. Yeah. I did learn that Jumping the Shark became a thing in the mid-90s when a University of Michigan student, Sean Connolly, used the term to describe an outlandish development, which was yes. Jumping the Shark. Yes, So 10 years later, that guy's roommate from college, John Hine, would use it and actually created a website, jumptheshark.com. <laughs> um, and really, it's like when you know that your favorite television program has reached its peak, those instances that you know from now on... It's downhill. Right. That's kind of how um, Henry Winkler saw it. In 1977, this is just another little tidbit, he played in a movie with Sally Fields and Harrison Ford. Oh, gas. Yes. So it was like heroes. I guess Harrison Ford commented while they were, you know, because Star Wars came out in 76. Yes. Um, so he commented that he had just finished filming this, you know, some sci fi thing. thing. With, yeah. With all green screen in the UK. He wasn't quite sure what to think of it, obviously. That was Star Wars. <laughs> it did okay. Yeah. It
0: did okay. It did better Harrison than the heroes. Did a yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But this movie that they were in was the story of a Vietnam veteran experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder Mm. before it was actually given that Mm name.
0: Um, Shell shock, Yeah. Probably. Probably.
1: Played a guy that wanted to, you know, start this worm farm with his old platoon buddies. And I guess he wanted Meryl Streep. She was reading for the part. He wanted her to get the, the part, but they gave it to Sally Fields. Like I said, Meryl Streep also attended Yale School of Drama, which... Henry Winkler had mm. attended. Okay. Um, barely got in by the skin of his teeth because, like I said, he was dyslexic and had horrible grades, even though he was super smart. Right. He's so funny. He's so open throughout the entire book. Like I said, it wasn't until his daughter was diagnosed with dyslexia that he had, you know, he finally understood right. what his issue was with the school. Right. He often winged it when he was reading. I'm saying reading with air quotes. He'd right. make up his own parts to things and kind of put a humorous spin on it. Sure. And just try to be the comedian type of guy. Sure. Like when he was supposed to read A Tale of Two Cities for school, I think wow. he put water on the book and kind of, you know, put the cover and he, he never read the book. <laughs> I had no idea until this that he has a whole series of books Sharing stories of his childhood from his huh. alter ego, Hank, um, about different things, you know, related to having dyslexia, which I think is so great to normalize it.
0: Right. It's out there a lot.
1: Right. Of, a lot of You're people not experience it. Yes. Right. Um, he has such an admiration for Adam Sandler. Oh. I know. That That's was cool. my thought. Noting that he's an amazing father and a great human being. And I must say I was a little surprised. Although I love any movie he's in with Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler are a great combination. And he also spoke very highly of John Ritter.
0: Oh yes. I
1: know. Yes. The two of them worked together at times and in 10 year span they raised like they raised millions of dollars for I want to say cerebral palsy, something mm-hmm. or maybe um, but yeah. So they raised a lot of money for good causes. They had a run with the dinner party. It was a play that okay. they put on. And at the annual Easter Bonnet competition, right? There's a mouthful. It's a fundraising event for the Broadway Cares, Equity Fights Aids. After the show, this touring company would auction off different memorabilia signed by the actors. Right. Okay. So every night at the end of the show, he and John would go on stage, and John would do this comedy shtick. Right. And... Cute. They sold the handkerchief that Henry wore in his pocket for fifty one cent time for fifteen thousand dollars. So they beat. They were pretty excited to beat Reba McIntyre playing. She was playing Annie. Get your gun, and she sold her earrings. <laughs> but they beat her by seventy five dollars. <laughs> and he said it was like winning an Academy Clean Award. Team. Yeah. The other person he clearly thinks very highly of, and now I do too, is Bob Daly. He went on from CBS to Lee Warren Brothers and eventually the Dodgers, which is my new favorite baseball team. <laughs> Can't remember if I talked about it on here, but they signed on Andrew Tolles. Did I talk about this no, before? I'm not, not so sure, um, I'm
0: not. Andrew, but Toles, maybe I put it, it, maybe because it was regarding sports, I <laughs> oh, <laughs> put it out of yeah. my brain. I don't know. Yeah. It could. It, it might happen. Um, well, in 2020,
1: uh, Andrew Tolles was arrested. For sleeping outside of the airport, it was discovered that he had schizophrenia, oh. and so the Dodgers they signed him on a five-year contract to make sure that he has health insurance. He won't be playing for the Dodgers. I have heard about so, this. Yeah, um, yes. so that's my new favorite team, and he must eventually be in charge. Right. Anyway, he noted that Bob Daly never forgot his humble beginnings. He was raised in Brooklyn by his mom and his sister. He started selling cigarettes on the street when he was little, and then he worked his way up from an office boy at CBS and on up. One night, Henry and his wife were at Daly's house for dinner. It was around 9, and this contract came, and someone, you know, uh, delivered it in a Hermes bag, which I meant to look up how much those are. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars. yes. And Henry Winkler's point was that he could have easily just taken the whole thing and, you know, set it aside and no one would ever know. But this guy had integrity, took the contract out, We returned the bag, and, you know, they went on their their way. But I just admire that, like I said, nobody would have known, Hmm. but he would have known. Mm -hmm. And he did the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, oddly... Henry Winkler didn't have a lot of nice things to say about Tom Hanks. I mean, he didn't say anything bad. But apparently, he blamed Tom Hanks for getting him fired from directing Turner and Hooch. Oh, interesting. Which I didn't even know he had. Blows me away that two of, like, the nicest-seeming guys in Hollywood appear to be having this feud. Yeah. But it just goes to show that we're all human.
0: We are. We all have flaws. Yes, exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. So, and the book really reminded me... Both for myself and for others, that it might seem like someone has it all together, mm-hmm. be on top of the world. Especially, you know, when we have social media and everybody just puts their
0: the highlight reel, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But not but often; it's not reality. Mm-mm. And um, don't judge. And like we were saying, right? Your comments with the the movie, right. You don't know their heart. No, you don't know what's going on or inside. their family situation yeah. or anything
0: else. Yeah. Till you're in their shoes. I kind of almost wished I hadn't even read some yeah. of that stuff because I loved it so much and wanted to share yeah. it with you all. And then I read those and thought,
1: should I share this? Like, well, I and then I asked myself, I, I want to you like know? type back and be like, you don't. Have- yeah, <laughs> like, you, so, you start yeah. second
0: guessing what yeah. you find inspirational, and I, yeah. and I and I do think it's just like if you find it inspirational yeah. and you think somebody else would benefit from hearing about this or be inspired by yeah. it, then one person. Just one person. It's It's worth it. it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right. Right. Um, So, yeah, don't judge. Also, he was big on just keep trying. Like Mm -hmm. he kept, he went so many years. He was typecast and, um, you know, they only saw him as the Fonz. And then he got older. And so he he kept trying even though he felt inadequate, even though he wasn't motivated. He just kept saying, just keep working. Mm
0: -hmm. Just keep working. Mm -hmm.
1: And that seems to have worked pretty well for him. And again,
0: I feel like we all have times like that, right? Absolutely. I mean, of course we aren't all time cast, yeah. right? Right. But we all have times of just keep yeah. trying. Just keep pushing, keep moving doing, forward. Yeah. One
1: foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um and he also pointed out to never finish a negative sentence. Which I really liked that. He said, Tell yourself, I have no time for that. And he said, People might look at you and people might think something funny about you, but (laughs) they might laugh and that's okay because you have to release the thought before it gives, you know, it a sentence and grows. Interesting. So, which is funny because you know, he talks about being an extreme cheap, I didn't just say cheapskate. He's very frugal, very Mm -hmm. careful with his money. Mm -hmm. He naturally tends to be more negative and, and, you know, sees stuff in a more pessimistic light. So I think he's had to work on that.
0: Um, that might also be from his upbringing.
1: Oh, absolutely. I 100%. Mean, and he has to a get therapist. That. Yeah, that now is, is definitely helping him sure. with, with that upbringing. Sure. sure. His point is that we don't have time for negativity. Right. Negativity inside, dealing with both just how we
0: feel about ourselves or with the it's world. An energy, too. Sometimes yeah. i just oh, like, oh, I just don't want to even put that out
1: yeah. there. Yeah. So that's going to be my biggest takeaway. I think just keep working. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep working. Stay positive, and don't ever finish a negative thought. Interesting. Also, so it was cute. He's big into survival bags. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, he likes to have like some like five weeks of food and some water and some clothes. Well, he had these bags, and his family kind of made fun of him, but then they had all those, or they had the big earthquake in California, mm-hmm. and the problem was that when he had put the bags together, his son, he put in sweats in there, and by the time his son put them on, yes. they were more like shorts. Yes. So he's like, yes. which I thought was pretty funny, and yes. they were very grateful for his his survival bags. And Catherine Hepburn, he was thrilled to work with Catherine Hepburn, he, he said that she... He came over and he had like an ashtray and he put it you know it's next to her but nope she just would let you know flick the, away yeah, wherever Catherine hepburn wanted to flick her ashes yeah. remember she would, how
0: she worked with christopher reeve too and oh, he just loved yes, her too yes. so, <laughs> so
1: cute um they would talk about john wayne and she's like oh is john wayne not with us anymore oh you know so, so yeah very sweet but The other thing I thought was a great lesson in the book was, like I said, it was Happy Days originally was supposed to be more centered with um, Ron Howard, Mm -hmm. and they ended up not really treating Ron Howard great. There was one Christmas that they gave all, like, Anson Williams and and Ron Howard, those three guys, a wallet for Mm -hmm. their Christmas gift. Well, Henry Winkler got, like, a fancy VCR. Mm. which back in the day, a VCR right. was huge. Really expensive.
0: Huge. Right.
1: And so I think that, you know, they just, they weren't, it, it, and I don't think Henry Winkler felt that was right either. Right. So he just, he wasn't treated great in a lot of different ways, but instead of harboring resentment, he went to, and went on to directing. Right. And he's, Henry Winkler's point in the book was that ABC's rudeness to Ron Howard helped make him a billion-dollar director. Right. So I love that rather than just whining about how I'll you show know, you. yeah, he just turned around and and he made just his own kept thrill. Working exactly, exactly he
0: kept working. So,
1: yes, like we all need to do. Yes. So I think everyone you know, if you're at all interested in in Happy Days or anything in the in the 70s yes being henry the fawns and beyond was
0: just a really good book sounds really great book. that is one of the most wonderful compliments i've ever gotten i never think of being nice i think of being grateful i think that i am so happy that i would get to do what i dreamt of doing and it has grown over the years henry winkler
1: we want to hear from you Please email us your thoughts, story ideas, or just say hi at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Tell us about someone inspiring in your life and like or subscribe to our podcast. It
0: helps us out and helps others find us. You can find more information about us at our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Follow us on Instagram at tangentialinspirationpodcast or find us on Facebook. Have a great week.